Hello, it's Tuesday, February the 15th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up, we're going to tell you all about keeping fit and staying healthy. And it's all to do with the bacteria in your gut. The government has moved a long way to help leaseholders who are still living with cladding of the sort that was on the Grenfell Tower. In the NHS, why is it that so many people from ethnic minorities, whether they're working for the NHS or being treated by the NHS, are being treated less well? But first, it's been described as one of the great corporate scandals of modern times. It's the post office IT scandal. I'm talking to one of those postmasters who was wrongly prosecuted for allegedly stealing money from his business when the whole time there was a problem with the computer IT system. The long-awaited inquiry is finally opened into what is described as the most widespread miscarriage of justice in British history. Between 2000 and 2015, three and a half thousand postmasters were wrongly accused of taking money from their businesses when faulty accounting software made it look as though money was missing from their sites. The glitch led to more than 700 post office postmasters and mistresses being handed criminal convictions. Sadly, at least 33 victims of the post office IT scandal have died waiting for justice. It's a shocking figure that was on the front page of the Daily Mail today. Joining me now is Chris Truesdale, who's one of the first sub-postmasters falsely convicted by the post office, and that was some 18 years ago. Chris, this has been a marathon rather than a sprint. Uh, The inquiry finally underway. Do you have um, any faith that it will do the right thing, the inquiry? The sounds from the inquiry are giving us confidence that they will certainly listen to us, but what we need is, is actions. We need to see things happening we need to know that the experiences of all these postmasters are taken on board and that the people who caused this scandal are held to account. Well, uh, so far, that none of them have been, have they? The people who were running the post office, the people who sanctioned these criminal prosecutions, none of whom thought it was odd that suddenly all these uh, pillars of, of um, the community were, had turned into crooks, ripping off the post office. I think it's worse than that, actually. I... I truly believe that it was very well known right throughout the organisation exactly what they were doing. Do you We've think seen so? from the court cases and from journalists' exposés that they, they, internal documents show that they knew these things were happening, but they kept prosecuting people. Why would they do that? You tell me. This is what we're hoping that the inquiry will get to the bottom of. These are the answers that we've been fighting for for nearly 20 years. We hope that inquiry has the teeth to be able to force people to come and give evidence. It's now a statutory inquiry. We have to battle to get it to, to mm. be uh, uplifted to statutory. So we're hoping now that evidence will be found and shown so the whole public, because the public deserve to know, but the, the amount of money this has cost the, the British taxpayer is astonishing. And we hope that these answers will come forwards. Well, yeah, I'm just looking at some of these figures. The compensation that they uh, earmarked the post office, 35 million, is now climbed to 153 million. It'll be public money in the end, uh, Chris, which means everyone listening to this, if they're a taxpayer, are going to be paying for it. Well, there's two angles, actually. Let's, people need to realise that a lot of the money that's due back to postmasters isn't public money. It's money they took illegally yep. from the postmasters. Okay. And on top of that, the compensation bill, there's been figures bandied around up to a billion pounds has been set aside. A billion pounds. 
Um, there's three angles. There's the, there's the historic shortfall scheme where 2,500 people who weren't prosecuted have been able to uh, get money back from the post office that was falsely taken from them. Those who had convictions, 700 convictions, 71 overturned, those people now have a route to get compensation. But unfortunately, there's this island in the middle of 555 who, who had the, the goal to take the post office to court and win. They are now excluded from full and fair compensation, which is an absolute outrage. And what about your own story, Chris? You were one of the first postmasters to be falsely convicted by the post office. How much did they allege you'd um, helped yourself to? And what happened to you? Well, I was very young at the time. I was one of the first. And like everyone else's story, they told us all the same thing. You were the only one having a problem with the horizon. This isn't happening to anybody else. These unexplained figures, um, no one took any interest when they investigated to actually look at the system and say what's happening. They only had one thing in mind, and that is to re- receive money from people and uh, ruin their lives. They, they had no reason to do this. Eternal documents in my own case clearly show that they had no evidence of theft, but they still prosecuted me. It was an absolute travesty. And you can imagine what 20 years of injustice with a criminal record has done. It, you can't even begin to distill down the the pain and the torture that that has caused my family, my friends, and this massive network of pillars of the community around the country who have gone through this same torture. And we know that the, 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 there were the problems with the Horizon IT system, which was introduced in 2000, 11,000 branches, uh, and it processed millions of transactions. Uh, in the most severe cases, we know some of your colleagues, Chris, were driven to bankruptcy, prosecuted. The courts have overturned 71 of the 706 convictions what about the two former post office it experts who are being investigated on claims they misled court trials which in effect could could end up becoming perjury we hope that that investigation by the met police is expanded they have told us that they're going to follow the threads wherever they lead these two people there's I believe there's very clear cases against them but obviously we have to wait for those investigations to run their course but we, we all know that it doesn't, just two people in an organisation the size of the posters and mm-hmm. Fujitsu, they're, they're not alone, are they? They've been instructed, people higher up knew. We've seen documentation from the uh, security head of the post office telling people to shred board meeting minutes. I mean, it's unbelievable. So we really hope that this investigation from the police goes far and wide and those people who have wrecked lives are really held to account. Well, here's, let's all agree with that, Chris. That's Chris Truesdale, one of the country's youngest sub-postmasters when he was unfairly prosecuted by the post office 18 years ago. Now, visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, and our podcasts and video series are there too. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So new laws as part of a building safety bill will ban developers from the housing market if... They refuse to do their bit to help end the cladding scandal. Leaseholders will be legally protected from paying to fix unsafe cladding, while building owners will have to cover the costs of other fire safety defects in most cases. On the line now is Stephen McPartland, who's the MP for Stevenage, who's been uh, pressing the government very hard for help for leaseholders. Stephen, it's probably not as simplistic as I'm saying. I think they're still leaseholders are still going to have to pay up to £15,000, aren't they? for uh, defects uh, in their blocks of flats? Um, no. Um, right. 
um, not. Um, so I think the announcements that we've made, um, yeah. we've been working with the government closely, and the government's come a huge way um, our way. So effectively, they've agreed that leaseholders will be protected in law. Right. Leaseholders are the innocent parties. Yeah. They've agreed it's not just a cladding scandal, it's a building safety scandal. So external fire safety defects will also be included. And we've also pushed them to include internal fire safety defects as well. So even two, three weeks ago, the government was saying no to that. And, you know, yesterday they agreed that they would do internal as well as external. So, Andrew, that includes things like um, missing fire breaks. So when the developers built the building, these are like, you know, gaps between the flats, which slow down the spread of fire between one flat and another. So it's clear the developers didn't build them. It's their fault. So, I mean, this is a huge, huge step forward. And then there'll be a waterfall in in a sense of the developers are the first people who are going to be pursued. The government's bringing in forensic accountants to chase down who they are. Um, If it's not them, it'll be the freeholders. And then what the government's done is... um, there's this backstop, this cap, and the idea behind the cap, which has been a little bit, um, people have not really understood the intention behind it, is it will limit leaseholders' liability to a maximum of £10,000 forever. Now, the £10,000, I don't think it'll ever be triggered. I don't think leaseholders will ever pay it. The 15000 in London, 10000 outside London. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I don't think leaseholders will ever pay it. And I think we're also trying to get the government to agree that if it was ever triggered, well, then any um, cost that you'd incurred over the previous five years, for example, waking watch or anything like that, would, would be taken off that cap so um that would never um ever really affect real leaseholders so if i give you an example my constituency there were some flats that were built um paid for around two hundred thousand pounds to buy them and they were being hit with remediation costs of about two hundred and twenty thousand pounds so effectively yeah Yeah. exactly the the flats were worthless they were like minus twenty thousand pounds so on the announcements that they've made, you know, the people in those flats now, uh, that most they'd ever be charged would be £10,000. So there's now a, there's a flaw there. So the flat would be £200,000 minus £10,000. There's now £190,000 value in that flat that didn't exist until yesterday. Yesterday, it was minus £20,000. So that's the idea behind the cap to provide some kind of boost to leaseholders. But as I say, you know, those people in those flats, because they've been paying waking watch and everything else, it's highly unlikely they'll ever pay a penny. So we've actually made massive progress. There's still more work to do, definitely, but we've made massive progress. What happens, though, um, if uh, some of the companies involved in the development building these blocks these blocks of flats have gone bust or even dare i say it made themselves go uh, into bankruptcy or administration to avoid bills like this there is some suggestion that that has happened in some parts of the country um, yeah, that is the case. So um, that's why the government's bringing in forensic accountants to then trace these people. So right. if they've then op- opened a new building somewhere else, they can chase them. But then if the developers aren't paying the cost, the next stage is the freeholders of those yeah. buildings will be responsible for the cost of building owners. And, you know, for them to say that they've gone bust, well, that means they have to give the freeholder the building up. Right. But don't so, aren't some of the freeholders also the leaseholders at the same time? Um, that's a very small minority of cases. So um, most freeholders are actually large institutions. So, I mean, this is why I say there's more work to be done. There are some little bits to be ironed out. So, for for example, um, if you're a shared owner, um, under the current law, you 
may own 10% of property, but you're responsible for 100% of the cost. We've got the government to agree that if you own 10% of the property, you should only ever be responsible for 10% of the costs. I so see. There are little bits that need ironing out still. So how many marks out of 10 for Michael Gove, the housing secretary, who, um, when he arrived, there was absolutely nothing on the table. As I recall, his predecessor, Robert Jenrick, you, you were all about to virtually lynch him, if we're allowed to yeah, use a word yeah. like that. <laughs> well, I think we're 9.2 billion um, better off now because of Michael. And yeah. if, I mean, I'd say nine out of 10 so far. I mean, he's listened to us, he's worked with us. And, you know, the previous Secretary of State, I mean, as you, I mean, you know, I said to him in Parliament itself, yeah. you know, get out of your ivory tower, stop you talking did. and start helping. Yeah. So, so I think as long as they keep working with us, um, it, we're not over yet. But these, you know, this is the best news for these holders, millions of them up and down the country. It gives them real hope. Well, that's good. That's encouraging. Uh, and thank, and thanks so much for coming on to tell us. That's Stephen McPartland, who's the Conservative MP for Stevenage, talking about the uh, latest stage in the building safety bill. So it's a pretty damning report. It was commissioned by the NHS Race and Health Observatory, and it's revealed a, sh- a huge and pretty shocking scale of the health inequalities faced by ethnic minorities. Racism, racial discrimination and barriers to accessing healthcare have negatively impacted the health of black, Asian and minority ethnic people in England for years, according to this review. Uh, joining me to discuss this is uh, James Nazru, who's Professor of Sociology at Manchester and a co-author of the report. And Professor Nazru, I'm amazed it's not we've not had a report like this before. It seems to have taken a very long time. Is it born of the fact we know that the people in the pandemic of an ethnic background were more likely to be seriously ill or even die? Or is it unrelated? So clearly that has influenced um, the ways in which policy has developed and the way in which people have thought about um, the question of ethnic inequalities. Uh, But the work that uh, we did um, actually is looking at evidence that has been generated over the last 10 years and bringing that evidence into in, in together into a single report. So, so it's basically a review of academic literature. And is there one particular part of um, the ethnic minority community, the black community, that is impacted more than most? Is it black Caribbeans, Asians? What would you say, Professor? Or is it across so the board? Found, we found that these inequalities vary across ethnic groups and they don't vary entirely in, in a uniform way across uh, different things. So just to give a little bit more detail, the review mm. focused very much on just five areas of healthcare service. Um, and these are five areas that the Race and Health Observatory have identified as priorities for their immediate work, um, largely by consultation with stakeholders. And those were mental health care, Um, maternal and neonatal health care, the movement towards digital access to health care providers and the increasing importance of genetic testing and genomic medicine in the area and finally uh, the situation of um, NHS workforce. And so it doesn't, it's not entirely comprehensive of all outcomes. No. It's focusing on some priority outcomes and as I said it's finding differences across uh, uh, different groups. I'd probably say two things in relation to which groups are, are, are um, most um, uh, most important to focus on. One is the Gypsy Irish and Traveller community around which um, and Roma community around which we find almost no research and no evidence. Even though, if you look across a range of public services, you can see um, uh, difficulties for people to access uh, services and to get good treatment under services. 
Um, and the other is a group who are missing um, entirely from the literature, which is Jewish people, rather surprisingly. Because of the way we collect ethnic statistics, we really see very little uh, information on, on the experiences of Jewish people. And, and why would that be? I, I, well, I think that's partly because of the way we collect uh, um, uh, ethnicity statistics. So Jewish is a religion, not a right. ethnic category. Oh, I see. People identify yeah. as Jewish. Yeah. Um, uh, and so they're not in the data. So having said that, of course, we do see marked inequalities faced by black people of various origins, by Asian people of various origins, and by white minority groups as well. And does the report, in the report, do you have recommendations for how the NHS can try and turn the tide on this? Well, one thing that we identify is a, is a, a really quite shocking lack of data to monitor the situation of ethnic minority people as they move um, through healthcare services. So one crucial issue is to make sure that we get good ethnic monitoring data that goes in detail about the various stages of healthcare received so that we can see where the inequalities really emerge. Another is to pay a great deal of attention to the ways in which our services are structured and operated and think about the way in which the ethnic minority experience might be different to that for the white majority. And so an example of that might be um, the difficulties of using uh, um, digital services um, and how uh, some older ethnic minority people in particular have very poor access to digital technology and if all they can do is talk to their GP through di digital technology then it's really going to cause them uh, major problems and, and another issue is around interpretation and the need for, for robust interpretation services within uh, the NHS. So if you think about our encounters uh, with a service provider, then the way in which we express ourselves, the way in which we talk about our symptoms and uh, our problems is absolutely crucial. But if we can't understand what they're saying to us and they can't understand what we're saying to them, then it becomes really very, very difficult. Um, and I guess a, a, another issue to pay attention to is the inequalities faced by ethnic minority staff within the NHS workforce. So their experiences of discrimination, their experiences of racism, the ethnic pay gap, and so on. And to not just focus on doctors and nurses there, however important they are, and mm. they do need to be focused on, but also to focus on the range of other workers within the NHS settings as well and the experiences they have. Very interesting. That's um, James Nazaru. He's Professor of Sociology at Manchester and he's a co-author of this report, uh, which was commissioned by the NHS Race and Health Observatory. Thanks for joining us. Now, time for our regular city update with Ruth Sunderland, who is Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Ruth, uh, it's just getting worse, isn't it? The cost of living crisis, petrol, all the other stuff, really, really, really difficult now. It's really difficult at the moment. Um, the cost of living crisis, as you say, is absolutely beginning to bite. And although um, one plus point is that employment is still very strong, the unemployment rate's only 4.1%, which is really a historic low, um, the growth in wages is just lagging behind the cost of living increases. So, you know, we've now got wages excluding bonuses, I should say, for those of us who are lucky enough to have a bonus, mm. um, have gone up by 3.7%. But of course, inflation has gone up by 54 So in effect, that means your actual spending power is falling. Your real wages, the value of those are down by 0.8%. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but of course, for some people, particularly the less well-off people, 
um, the, their effective rate of inflation, their personal rate, as it were, is much higher than that because the less well-off you are, the greater the proportion of your income you're likely to be spending on things like energy and food and household goods. So particularly hits pensioners, particularly hits people who are not that well-off. All in all, you know, it's not really a very good look. I mean, our economy is doing quite well in comparison with some of those in Europe, but, you know, it's still not going to make a massive difference. I'm not sure how much of a comfort that is when you're on the wrong end of a squeeze. Yeah, and Ruth, and we just and we just see more trouble coming down the line. With with in, we've talked about it endlessly, haven't we? National insurance uh, rises going up, yeah. and, and God help us, it looks like to me perhaps the military threat is receding in Ukraine. But if Russia did pile in there, that would put, send energy prices even higher, wouldn't it? Yeah, this is a, this is a real worry. So obviously, if Russia invades Ukraine, we're going to have worries on all kinds of levels, and and. Um, financial worries so it will only be one of those but one of um, Vladimir Putin's most potent weapons is that he has in fact um, weaponized energy um, mm. he's got a stranglehold on this Nord Stream pipeline yeah. Germany and the rest of Europe are very dependent on Russia for their energy needs and that filters through of course to us you know we're not directly in that situation but it all has, has a knock-on effect I very very much hope that the threat has receded um it can only make matters worse and it's not just the energy side of this as well we've seen stock markets very very nervous very volatile i haven't dared look at my isa i suspect quite a lot of (laughs) quite a lot of our listeners probably feel the same you know you need to hang on to those investments for the long term obviously um but there have been a lot of nerves out there on financial markets about about this situation um and of course you know, we, we, with our public finances in such a state as they are, um, it means that defence budgets are under pressure along with everything else. Um, you know, we've taken a very odd strategy, I think, or an odd view in terms of selling some of our best defence assets off, admittedly to, to, to the Americans, but even so, you know, we, we need our own national defence companies, in, in, in my view. And all of this going on at the time when Putin is increasingly bellicose, um, you, you, do have to, you do have to worry about it. Certainly do. Um, as ever, great to talk to you. Ruth Sunderland, Group Business Editor at The Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Inflammation is your immune system's response to germs, damage or disease, but it it is also the key risk factor for a multitude of chronic diseases, such as certain cancers, heart diseases, neurodegenerative disease and metabolic conditions. Chronic inflammation can also subtly impact the quality of life, leading to fatigue, headaches, fertility issues and even premature ageing. Immunologist Dr Jenny Machoki is an expert on the impact our lifestyles have on our risk of infection and disease and she's written a full spread for Good Health today with some interesting tips and even an immunity check quiz. She joins me now to reveal some of her advice. Um, Dr Jenna, if I could say, the thing that surprised me most of all was when you've eaten your meal... It's good to get up and move straight away from the table. Now, I was always brought up to believe you sit at the table and let the food go down. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, well, things change over time. And I I don't think that we should be, you know, embarking on exercise immediately after eating. But certainly even things like clearing the table, standing in the kitchen, doing dishes, 
um, or, you know, or moving around as you're clearing up, uh, all of that movement is really helpful for that post-eating blood sugar uh, wave that we, we have going on in our body. And that overall is really helpful for our immune system. Yeah, now, now it's interesting. You say it's like, like an athlete. The immune system needs to balance training and practice with adequate rest and repair to become strong and adept. So um, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we balance training and how do we give it rest and repair? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to remember is the immune system is regulated by things we cannot control, like our genetics and yeah. you know, things that happened to us in the past. But there's many different inputs that shape that shape it that we can control and rather than just thinking oh I just need to take these supplements or have a good diet we can think about all these different things as being dials so it it would be a good diet but it would also be getting regular movements breaking up sedentary periods doing some resistance exercise once or twice a week it's also about getting good quality sleep so not just how long you're sleeping but making sure those hours of sleep are are of good quality um it's things like managing your stress recovering after exercise or intense periods from your life because we only have so many resources available in our body so there's a constant triaging of things going on and immune responses are quite costly so we need to make sure that we're furnishing it with everything that it needs and what's the bacteria in our gut? Now that your piece makes clear, it helps improve all of our immune systems. How so? Yes, yeah, I mean, you have this living ecosystem inside your digestive tract, but you also have around 70% of your immune system located along your gut as well. So these microbes that live in there are up close and personal with your immune cells. And they kind of act like um, trainers and educators of the immune cells. Um, teaching them how best to respond and regulating them. And the other thing that these microbes are doing is that they're responsible for digesting a lot of the things we eat. So anything that comes from a plant, fruits, vegetables, beans, pulses, it's actually those microbes that are breaking that that food down because we're not very good at doing it by ourselves. And when they break it down, they produce metabolites, so it's kind of like the waste products, which are absorbed into our bloodstream and travel around our body and our immune cells have receptors on their surface for these metabolites and it can change the behavior of our immune cells. So what's going on in our gut can actually affect the immune response in our lungs, for example. It's, 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 it's fascinating. It's, it's like a whole industry is going on inside our, our, <laughs> our body, isn't it? And it's exactly. extraordinary. A really good way to, to think of it. I think of it as your own personalized pharmacy. Yeah. And, and now, now you're a big, you don't like the idea of um, immune boosting. You don't like that phrase. What, what's the problem with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of understand where people are coming from when they say that. They, you know, we've just been through two years of the COVID situation. We want to yeah. make sure that our immune systems are in tip-top shape and, and working as best that they can. Um, but it, it's not like an on-off switch where you turn it on and then you turn it up. It's It's you know, half of your immune system is actually controlling the other half. So we want to have this balance going on where we're appropriately turning it on, but then switching it off again when everything's resolved. So I think boosting is more appropriate when we talk about things like a vaccine booster, because that's boosting the original response. But uh, there's not really a place for saying immune boosting when it comes to specific supplements or diet and lifestyle practices. 
And I like this idea also about the insurance policy, paying into your immunity for the long game, which so that would be by having, choosing particularly healthy food. Um, I'm thinking fibre, vegetables, um, healthy fats. I don't know what a healthy fat is. Perhaps you can explain that. Grains, uh, nuts even. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, you know, we, we've seen very clearly with COVID that, you know, our age is a big factor in how well we feel and how easily we can send off germs. And, and actually, your immune system can age faster than your chronological age if you have a poor diet and lifestyle. So we want to build that bank account for the future. We want to be really eating and, and doing things today that keep us healthy when we're older. You know, you might not want to live till you're 100, but probably you want to feel fit and well enough to enjoy your life out into the, the, the later years. Mm. And yes, it does come down to a, a big part of it is diet. And it's the pattern of our diet overall that's important. So not just eating these five immune boosting foods that you see advertised somewhere. It's really what do you eat across the week? Are you hitting certain targets for the numbers of fruits and vegetables? Are you getting diversity of different plants in a healthy fat? A great example would be olive oil, which mm. has got some unique immune nourishing properties as well. Um, or certain uh, uh, things like avocados are a great source of fat. We want to just be um, avoiding the more saturated fats or foods that are richer in saturated fats. Um, yeah, and like you said, the fiber is important. Protein, that's the building blocks of all those uh, antibodies we want to make to fight off germs. It's fascinating, all of this. Um, if there was one piece of advice that you would give someone uh, about ensuring that, that they're looking after their gut, what would be the most important thing, Dr. Jenna? I think it would be just to uh, add in a diverse range of different plants, broaden your horizons just from the five-a-day fruits and vegetables, Yeah. Uh, pick up something new in your weekly shop, You know, add in a handful of lentils to your spaghetti bolognese, you know, just see those small opportunities. Even things like dried herbs and spices are a great way. Um, to, you know, they give food flavor as well, but they're also increasing that diversity. And, and build up slowly. You know, we all might have a, a goal in mind for where we want our health to be, but often we, we get derailed very early on because we set our sights on something quite ambitious. And I'm all about the sort of small and sustainable habits that have the, you know the biggest punch in the long game and just finally you you are a great advocate of vitamin p <laughs> yep <laughs> people might not have heard of vitamin well p. i'm afraid i hadn't actually so this is a this is a new one on me what is it yeah so vitamin p was actually the name given to uh these particular chemicals that are found in a lot of vegetables that are now known as flavonoids and they're not strictly a uh, vitamin because we don't have a particular disease of deficiency that occurs if you don't eat enough of them. But they're more kind of longevity nutrients. So if we don't have enough, then our health tends to suffer in the, uh, the long term. And they help get rid of unwanted inflammation. They fight the free radicals, which are damaging molecules that can um, uh, harm our own tissues. And they also help our own body switch on genes that are going to make our immune system more resilient. Um, if you want to increase the vitamin P in your diet, you really want to think about the colour of fruits and vegetables, so eating the rainbow, and also it's found in things like olive oil. But also, you know, herbal teas, um, fresh or dried herbs, 
different citrus fruits. So thinking about getting that rainbow of diversity where possible. And of course, all of this advice and tips are, are in your book, which is coming out. Um, is it probably coming out next week or is it this week? Um, yes, it's next week. Uh, it's next Thursday, the 24th of February. So it's your blueprint for strong immunity. It's really a guide on how to personalize your diet, your lifestyle, your environment towards better health. So finding a way for you to benchmark where you're at and then getting you to where you want to be. Well, it sounds fascinating. And as I say, there's a great spread about the book In Good Health today. So thanks so much for joining me. I'm going to now invest in vitamin P, Dr. Jenna, <laughs> and um, I'm going to keep your article today in my kitchen. Oh, with my <laughs> by my cookery books so that's all good so thank you so much Jeremy that is Dr Jenna Machoki uh, who is an immunologist of some 20 years experience who's written a book which is called just to remind you your blueprint for strong immunity that's all we've got time for today for the latest from the Daily Mail download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm you can listen to me all over again I am Andrew Pierce. this is the Andrew Pierce show I'll be back tomorrow have yourselves a great evening and good night good night